who would remain desperate for you at all times. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. And Father, we pray right now as we go to your word again, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. That, Father, each one of us would be receptive to what you want to minister to our hearts. So we would leave this place different than the way that we came. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Turn to Numbers chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you one. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that with you. Or if you like that Bible better than the one you've got at home, you can take that with you. Read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? Got to have the Bible at home or you can't be in God's Word. Well, Numbers 14, this is an awesome chapter. And, I, and, and again, if you're new here, I'm going to catch up a little bit, but we'll get into more review here as we go along. But one of Satan's biggest and most effective lies that he tells us in the church today is that since we've been born again, since we've been forgiven, that now we can kind of live life however we want. Satan loves to tell Christians, hey, you've been forgiven, it's okay, live however you want from now on. You've got the get-out-of-hell-free card in your wallet, right? You're going to heaven, you walked the aisle, you prayed the prayer. Now just live like the world. You know, when you're tempted to sin, don't you hear Satan telling you, God will forgive you? How many of you ever heard that before? Right? We know that's the enemy. And that's a lie that Satan loves to tell us. That living lives of personal holiness and passionate faith and having a spiritually intimate walk with God is only for a few super religious people. But it's not for the everyday Christian. We're going to look at the text tonight. We're going to see that that is absolutely not true. God's desire is that every single born-again believer have an intimate love relationship with Him 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Amen? It's not just a Sunday morning, Wednesday night thing, and it's not just for the, the super saints. Again, we've been born again and we're going to heaven, but we must remember that God still has so much more that He wants to do with us. Again, He wants to start... And you know, the sad part is, I, I hear this too, I hear a lot of Christians that once they're born again, instead of realizing they need to be desperate for God, then they start making demands upon God. Well, I'm a Christian now, so now I'm going to tell you, God, how you're going to do things in my life. And you start hearing Christians do things like, you know, cl- claim it, God, you've got to give me this, and tell God what you want, and, and God, you know, you've got to give me that promotion at work. You know, God, you've you got to bring me that wife I've been waiting for. God, you've got to give me that house and that stuff. You know, I deserve it and I claim it in your name. If you've ever heard anybody do that before, that is so contrary to the Bible, it scares me. Because God doesn't need us to tell Him what to do. Amen? Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. We come desperate for Him. When we're praying, our focus should not be the stuff that we want from Him. Our focus should be Him. Amen? Our focus should totally be Him. When you come to the Lord in prayer, if you're thinking about what you're going to get or what you need, or what you've missed it. And we're going to see tonight that the children of Israel have been given so many great promises by God, and they started to fall into the same trap that we see happening in so much of the church today. Sometimes we pray, and then when God doesn't give us what we ask for, we'll say things like, God hasn't been faithful to me. When I hear people say that, that scares me. God hasn't been faithful to me. Now, maybe even you've said that, right? God hasn't been faithful to me. God just doesn't answer my prayers. Well, God answers every prayer. Did you know that? He answers them three ways. Yes, no, and wait. Amen? But He answers every prayer. Now, we're saying God didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted Him to answer it. So He's not being faithful to me. And that happens when we look at the world through physical eyes rather than spiritual ones. When we start looking at our circumstances and our consequences with our physical eyes, we start to say, you know what, God, here's what you need to do. You haven't done it. You're not being faithful to me. And I'm sharing this with you because we're going to see that in the text tonight. As Christians, again, our focus, our passion, our heart should be on Him and not what we want Him to do for us. Pursuing God and a passion for Him. Having faith in Him and His will for our lives. Praying for His will, not our will. Putting anything else before God is idol worship. You know what that includes, you guys? Your career, your possessions, even your family. If you elevate your family above God, it's idol worship. And so often what we do is our prayer lives reflect our heart and we start praying and demanding God and directing God and telling God what we think is best. And then when He doesn't give us what we want, again, we think that He's not been faithful. I tell you, that's a, deep, a bad trap for Christians to fall into. That our hearts get out of balance and we get filled with disappointment and we become ineffective for the kingdom of God when we're just looking for God to give us stuff. Respect, responding to God's will for our lives with doubt or unbelief or, or even 
any other way. It's like saying, God, you, I know better than you do. God, you, you just don't get it. Let me help you out. And when we pray, we need to remember who we're talking to. Amen? He's a creator of the universe. He knows all your problems. You know, sometimes I think it's a mistake when we like run down the whole problem for the Lord. Now, Lord, let me talk to you about this guy at work. Now, here's his situation. Let me tell you every detail. It's been 20 minutes. Does the Lord know all that? Of course he does. This, may we reach out with our hearts and spend our prayer time in love with the Lord and pray for people, but know that God knows the details. It's rebellion when we have doubt, when we come before the Lord. And so far in the Old Testament, here's what we've seen. Man created God in his own image, and he put him into the Garden of Eden, and it was perfect. And in the Garden of Eden, it was perfect, and he, it says he could walk with God in the cool of the day. Adam was walking with the Lord, and then he brought Eve, his wife, and everything was wonderful. And there was no sin, and there was no pain, and there was no sorrow, and there was no suffering, and there was no death. It was incredible. And they could just talk to God. Hey, God, how you doing? It was incredible. No sin separating man. And they had everything they could want. There was nothing that they needed that wasn't already given to them. And what did man do? He chose to sin. Because we are rebellious by nature. And so we rebel against God as Adam did and they fell away. And then we got to Exodus and we saw that prior to that, that man rebelled against God again in the days of Noah and God brought a great flood of judgment. And then we get to Exodus and now they're in 400 years of bondage. Why are they in bondage? Because of their rebellion against God. Remember he told them to give them every Sabbath and they didn't do it? And God brought them into bondage and they spent how many years in bondage? Who remembers? 400 years. And then God heard them crying out when they were in bondage for 400 years because of the rebellion and God showed grace and he went and he rescued them out of bondage. And so we've been looking over the last several weeks in Numbers that they were delivered out of bondage and then in Numbers God begins to give them clear and divine direction. You know in Exodus he gave them the Ten Commandments Moses was then called to, to bring them out. And now we've seen that God's put them and in, encamped in, in them in the shape of a what? A cross. You look in Numbers chapter 2 and he looks down on the people and he, and he orders them in a specific number. And when you take a look at that, he put them in the shape of a cross. And the center was a tabernacle where the Holy Spirit dwelt. And he's promised them, I'm going to take you into the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. Not only am I going to take you out of bondage, but I'm going to take you into a land of milk and honey. And my spirit is going to lead you. And you know what? It should have been so easy for them to, to respond to God. All they had to do was look up, and when the cloud moved, move. The cloud would move, and then what else happened to confirm the moving of the cloud? The trumpet blew. We've talked about this, right? The cloud, a picture of the Holy Spirit. The trumpet, a picture of God's Word confirming that it's moving. And as soon as it would move, then they would follow. And it was so easy for them to follow. It should have been very easy for them to follow. But we saw, starting in Numbers 11, that they had been encamped at Mount Sinai, and the trumpet finally blew. The cloud moved. And they were moving for three days, and what did they start to do? What did they start doing? Complaining and murmuring. Remember that? They, they didn't trust God's promise. Instead of realizing, I'm getting closer every step to the land of promise, instead they began to complain. We're going to walk. Dude, a year ago, you were getting whipped, and you were in bondage, and God's delivered you. He's dropping food out of the sky. You're encamped under the coolness of the cloud. You're headed to the land of promise. You ought to be rejoicing, and instead, they began to murmur and began to complain. People began then to, again, complain about God's provision as well, and they cried out for flesh, and God brought quail into the, to the camp, and as they ate the quail, it rotted in their mouth, and those who ate it died. We then saw in Numbers chapter 12 that the complaining went from the people to the leadership. Moses, brother and sister Aaron and Miriam began to complain because 70 elders had been raised up. They thought their position was being diluted and they said, hey, this isn't fair. Moses is the one that everybody looks to, but I'm a prophetess. And Aaron said, yeah, and I'm a high priest. And what happened? God struck Miriam with what? Leprosy. Because it's a picture of sin. And she was then moved outside of the camp, and we saw that her sin had consequences not only on her, but the entire camp, because the entire camp had to wait seven days until her leprosy was over. We also saw the grace of Moses, because she was complaining against Moses, right? And Moses didn't say, good. And we'll be talking about me ever again either, right? You know, slap a little leprosy on you next time, that, right? He didn't do that. What he did was he prayed for her. He didn't parade her through the camp, as I said last couple weeks, with a t-shirt says, you talk bad about Moses, this could be you. He didn't do that to her. Instead, what he did was he prayed for her and she was healed. 
But it cost them seven days of waiting, more murmuring among the people. And then we got to chapter 13 last week. And I titled the message last week, Faith in God or Fear of Man. And what we saw there was learning to trust in God's promise because they had come to the outskirts of the land of promise. Remember that we said it was only an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to the land of promise. But as we're going to see tonight, they're going to spend 40 years on an 11-day journey. Because when we miss God, we don't move forward in our walk with Him. When we're walking in disobedience, we're not going to grow. and We're not going to move closer to His ultimate calling upon our lives. So what happened was they got to the outskirts, and what was God's plan? What did He tell them? When you get there, go into the land. And what did they do instead? Who remembers? They sent spies in. The people came and said, we need, you know, go send some guys up there to make sure it's okay. Now God told them to go, but we've got to make sure that God's right. I've done that. You ever done that? You know God told you, but you still, you know, put your foot in the, you know. You don't want to jump in. I've got to make sure for myself. And so they sent the spies up, and we know what happened. The 12 spies came back, and 10 of them came back with a horrific story. Oh man, there's giants in the land. And we go up there, they're going to they're gonna eat us up. They're going to devour us. We're in huge trouble. And Joshua and Caleb came back, and you've got to love these guys. Joshua comes back. Joshua's name also can be transliterated into what name? Jesus. Caleb was, was from what tribe? Judah. Judah is the tribe of Jesus, right? Lion of the tribe of Judah. Which tribe went and marched in the front as they marched? Judah. Because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's interesting, as we're going to see tonight, well, we won't see every, all of it tonight, but Moses ultimately will not enter into the land of promise, but Joshua and Caleb will. And it's interesting that Moses is a representation of the law, and the law can't get you into heaven, can it? Right? The law reveals your need for a Savior, but only Jesus can bring you in. And Moses could not bring the people into the land of promise, the picture of the law. He brought them to it, but they had to get in through, the, through Jesus Christ. And then, as some people pointed out to me last week, Caleb, I told you last week, his name means dog. And then I looked, I went and confirmed it today, that he was a Gentile grafted into the, lion, the tribe of Judah. He was a Canaanite. And what's interesting about that is, so who are the two people that entered into the land of promise? Out of 600,000 men, two are going to make it into the land of promise. Interesting. One of them, his name is Jesus, right? Joshua. And the other one was a Gentile grafted into the tribe of Judah. Isn't that kind of a picture of the church today? Most Christians are those who've been grafted in, Gentiles, and we get there only through Jesus Christ. So then we're going to pick up, and where we're getting at this, this morning, or this morning, this evening, is we're going to come to the point in chapter 14, we're going to pick right up where the story left off. They've just heard from the 12 tribes, and now it's their turn to respond. And I titled the message, The Consequences of Rebellion, because we're going to see them rebel against God. We're going to see the response of the people, we're going to see the Lord's reaction, the intercession of Moses on their behalf, the righteous judgment of the Lord, and them disobeying God's commands. So let's begin looking at the response of the people as they're going to defy the will of God. Look at verse 1. Now, they've just been told there's giants in the land. And look how the people respond. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Now, whose testimony did they receive? The ten spies or Joshua and Caleb who said, let's go get them. Caleb said, hey, our Lord, God's with us. Who can be against us? Let's head on up there. God told us to go. It's a land flowing of milk and honey, just like God said. We brought back grapes the size of bowling balls. Man, this place is going to be sweet. Right? You complaining about manna? Let's head on up there. And the other ten said, oh, there's giants in the land. We're going to kill. We're going to devour us like grasshoppers. Three million people who were once whiners are now wailing and crying. Man, I'm glad I'm not pastoring this church, right? Poor Moses, right? They went from, from, they were murmuring and complaining about the manna, and now they're wailing and crying because they heard there's giants in the land. You know, though there be giants in the land, we shall not be afraid. God brought us out to bring us into the promised land, amen? They should have been singing that song. Instead, they were blown away by the difficulties that might be before them. They heard the reports, and they're going to disobey God's will. They had heard the ten faithless spies. You know what? Faithlessness leads to fear. There is no fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
No fear. That's what the Bible says. What do we have to be afraid of? People sometimes will say to me, Pastor Dave, you're going to India? I mean, aren't they... Is God in control in India like He's in control here? Yes. You guys are going to Israel in March? Don't you know they're... God's in control. Amen? We don't have to be afraid of anything. There's no fear for those in Christ Jesus. But these guys were afraid because they were faithless. Their eyes were on their circumstances instead of their eyes being upon the Lord. If their eyes had been on God, they would have run up the hill. Look at verse 2 and 3. And all the congregation of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said, if we had only died in the land of Egypt, or if we had just died in this wilderness. Man, what a great bunch of folks. What a, what a great bunch. Three million people. If we just died in Egypt. Would have been great. I mean, man. Now, so not only do they murmur and complain, but now they look around for the spiritual leader in the group and go after him. They're having a roast pastor on Sunday afternoon after church, right? You know, let's attack him now because things aren't good in my life. It must be his fault. Moses brought us out here. It's him. That's what, that's what it is. And so they start to attack and complain against Moses, God's anointed. If we had just died in Egypt or if we had died in the wilderness, I want you to take note of that statement. Look what they said there. Or only if we had died in this wilderness. Remember how I told you how Sometimes God's greatest judgment is giving people what they ask for. If only we died in the wilderness. We're going to see this at the end of the text. Look at verse 3. Now, they complained against Moses. Now look who they're going to complain against. They just keep moving up the chain of command. Look at verse 3. Why has the Lord brought us to this land by this, to, to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? The selective memory... Of mankind, They begin first to complain against God's anointed, eyes on their circumstances. Now they begin to complain against the Lord. Our wives and children have become victims. You know, can I tell you the, the quickest way to make your family a bunch of victims? I'm talking to the guys right now specifically. You're the spiritual leader in your home. You want your family to be a bunch of victims. Go home and start complaining about everything in front of your kids. And you'll raise a bunch of whining complainers. Right? I tell guys all the time, I did ministry for years, and I used to say, guys, Christianity is way more caught than taught. And the way you live in front of your kids will say way more to them than, than all the Bible verses you share with them. If somebody cuts you off on the freeway and you're screaming at them, that's the example your kids will follow. If somebody is abusive to you in the neighborhood and you say, God's in control, it's okay, let's pray for them, your kids are going to respond the same way. And what's happening here is you've got a bunch of these guys whining and complaining and they're worried about their children. If they're worried about their children, they'd have their eyes on the Lord. Instead of whining and moaning and complaining and saying, our kids are all going to die. It's interesting. The kids are going to be the ones that survive. They're saying right here, if we took our kids into the land of Canaan, those giants would kill our kids and our wives. Well, guess who's going to go into the land of Canaan? Their kids. And God's going to bless them there. Would it not have been better if we had died in, uh, for us to return to Egypt? You know, the Bible says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool does to his folly. They wanted to return to the very bondage that they had been crying out and asking God to deliver them from. God help, God help, God help. And he does. And now they're saying, I want to go back to that. You know, sadly, I meet people all the time and sharing with them that they're struggling in their walk with the Lord. And they say, I'm just going to go back to drinking again, man. I'm just going to go back and start drinking again. I'm going to go back and start doing drugs, man. I, you know, at least then I knew what was what. I'm going to go back and do drugs. You know, God won't give me what I want. I'll show him. I'm going to go get lit. Yeah, that'll show him, right? You'll be puking in the gutter, not God, right? And, and here's the thing. We say we want to go back to our old life. I mean, we have this, again, we have this, this finite short-term memory where we remember the good things about our old life and we forget, we forget the consequences that sin brings. Again, that lie that Satan tells us, your sin won't be a problem. It's okay. You're going to heaven, man. Just go do it. And that's what's happening here. You know, we've been delivered out of bondage and now they want to go back to the beatings, back to standing in the 110 degree weather making bricks without straw. You know, back into bondage surrounded by idol worshipers Instead of being free, walking under the cloud, headed to the land of promise. How deceived. But you know what? As Christians, we do the same thing. When we want to go back to our old way of life, when we want to go back to doing the things that we used to do before we were saved, and we remember partying with fond memories, and we remember going out to clubs or dating or whatever it might be, and we remember, oh yeah, I remember that was great. No, it wasn't. 
And the consequences of it were heavy. The flesh has a selective memory. Then look what it says in verse 4. So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Unbelievable. They go from being whiners, murmurers, complainers, to criers, to quitters. I'm going home. I'm not doing this follow God thing anymore. And you know what? There's another word for this. And the word is rebellion. So deep was their faithlessness and rebellion that they would they not only refused to walk in obedience to the promise of God, but they wanted to go in the exact opposite direction. Oh, God wants us to go this way? You know what? Let's get a leader and go right back where we came from. I would love to see him try to get across the Red Sea personally, but I uh, ain't got no rod up in here this time, right? No one's part anything for you, right? But, you know, they've got this plan to go back into bondage. I want to go back and just be a slave to my flesh again. I want to go back and serve my old master who wants to, to kill and destroy me. A sign of a hard heart is deciding on purpose to go contrary to God's will. Overcome by their circumstances, no longer thankful for the deliverance God had given them. God wouldn't give them what they wanted, so they said, I'm just going to go back to my old way of life. Again, when we say God hasn't been faithful to us, it's usually because God hasn't given us what we want the way we want it. We can be faithless, but God's always going to be faithful, you guys. You know what? Can I tell you that there's so much peace when you get to the point in your life when you realize the sovereignty of God. God is in control of every aspect of life. God is in control of the minute things that you don't even think are important. You know, my kids and I, for something little like Little League, we'll pray before the draft that God will put them on the team that He wants them on and then that we'll have an opportunity to witness to people on that team. And as some of you heard a few weeks ago, one of my son's Little League coaches started coming to church here and he got saved a few weeks ago here. And it may seem something simple, but the reality is when you learn to say, you know what, God, you're in control of every detail. You're in control of, of, of what, the house I live in. You're in control of the people I sit next to at work. You're in control of who I get in line behind at the grocery store. This is all divine, Lord. I trust you. This flat tire is for a reason. Lord, whatever happens, you're in control. And then you don't murmur and complain. You start saying, okay, God, how are you going to use this for your glory? Instead of rebelling against God, you say, God, what do you want to do through this? But these guys were so focused on themselves murmuring and complaining about having to walk a little bit and then hearing the story that the land flowing with milk and honey was going to have a, some giants in the land. So instead they said, let's just go back. Let's just go back. Don't make the mistake of putting too much of your focus on your circumstances. Put your focus on the Lord. The storms are going to come, but God's faithful and God is in control. As children of God walking in His will, there's no place for complaining, not even in the midst of difficulty. You know what, guys? When we complain, what we're saying is, God doesn't care. God's not in control. God doesn't know about my details of my life. God will not take care of me. God's not faithful to His promises when we complain. And you know what? We're all, we all complain from time to time, don't we? I know I do. You know, somebody, you know, you get on the phone, you're on hold forever, and the person comes online finally, and, you know, well, thank you, about time, you know, right? And the reality is that maybe God wants me to witness to that person. And instead of complaining, maybe I should be praying for the person as I'm waiting on hold for them to pick up. Lord, give me a chance to witness to them, right? Would that change the conversation a little bit more than me sitting there going, 12, 15 minutes, man? I hear that song. That's the eighth time I've heard the song on their thing, right? Right? And instead, we should have a heart, not rebellious, but realizing, God, you're doing this for a reason. And these guys have missed it. I want to go back to Egypt. I just want to rebel against God. Now look at Moses and Aaron's response. And I would pray as a pastor, I would have their heart. Three million murmurers, whiners and complainers, complaining against Moses, complaining against God, wanting to elect somebody to take them back to Egypt. So how do Moses and Aaron respond? Look at verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. What did they do? When people were rebelling, they prayed for them. You know, often when people rebel, we want to judge them. Don't we? Oh, God's will, man. He deserves whatever he gets. Ever done that? I have. You know, and, and sometimes you're almost happy when someone gets smacked around when they're outside of God's will. And instead, what we should be doing is praying for them. Lord, 
man, look at the rebellion. Would you, Lord, just minister to their heart. Lord, if you want to use me to minister to their heart. These guys fell on their faces, and I love the fact they didn't go hide and pray. They fell on their faces in front of the whole congregation of people that were murmuring against them, and they just sought the Lord's face. So we see four people in the camp that love the Lord, and two of them are praying. But what do the other two guys do? Look at verses 6 through 9. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. So they were in mourning over the people wanting to go back to Egypt. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So two guys pray, and the other two remind them of God's promises and encourage them. Isn't that the way we should respond to people in rebellion? Instead of getting out a stick and smacking them, we ought to pray for them, remind them of God's promises, and encourage them. That's what we should be doing in the church. The church is a hospital, not a police station. Amen? When people come in hurting, we ought to love on them and encourage them in their walk with the Lord. These men of faith trusted in God's Word, and what they were saying is, guys, we've been up there, and I'm going to remind you what we just told you. I don't care how many guys are up there. If God's with us, it doesn't matter. If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't care what the world says, what the doubters say, what the circumstances are, or the size of the enemy. I trust what God says. Again, if God is for us, who can be against us? And let's look again. They equate fear here with the rebellion because look what it says in verse 9 do not rebel nor fear the people of the land because when we fear we're in rebellion when we fear we're not trusting what god has told us if god's promised me that he will take care of me and then i'm afraid and i'm fearful and i'm running away i'm saying lord i don't trust what you've told me i don't believe what you said i don't believe in your word that's rebellion and we don't want to hear that today. We like the, Some of us like that lie Satan tells us. Just You're on the cruise ship to heaven, man. Just live your life. You know what? We should be walking in holiness, pursuing God with our whole heart and trusting in His Word completely and totally. He's a faithful God. The ten spies, from a physical perspective, said, they will devour us. Last chapter. And what do these guys say? These guys are our bread. What are they saying? We're going to devour them. God's on our side. Ten spies, they're going to devour us. We're grasshoppers, they're going to smoke us, man. We're in big trouble, we'll run away, right? And the two guys are like, God's on our side. They're bread. You know, we got the grapes, so we got the wine. Let's go on up and have some bread. We're going to have some communion, right, up in here. And we're going to take these guys because God's on our side. And you've got to love guys like Joshua and Caleb. And we need more people like that in the church today. When everyone's murmuring and complaining, you stand up and remind them of God's promises. Amen? Next time one of your brothers in Christ says, man, you know, God's faithful and he loves you and he's going to take care of you and he's a faithful and a loving and a gracious God. And I believe his word. And let me show you what his word says about your circumstances. Encourage him. That's what these guys needed. But again, sadly, these guys have their own free will. Look at what it says, verse 10. So they're encouraged. These guys, you got four guys praying for you and then encouraging you and reminding you of God's promises. And then what do they do? Look at verse 10. And all the congregation said, stone them with stones. Wait a minute. These guys are praying for them and encouraging them and reminding them of God's promises so they want to throw stones at them until they're dead. That's pretty rough. Man, I'm praising, I'm praising the Lord for this congregation. All that you guys rock, right? right? You don't stone, you rock, okay? But these guys right here, and this is his church, and they want to stone them. They want to kill them. Because they're praying for them and they're encouraging them. How did the people respond to these faithful men? They wanted to kill them. These complainers and murmurers want to silence those who are faithful. They wanted to silence the truth. They keep their own fleshly perspective. Why don't people want crosses on hillsides? Why does it bother people? Who say they don't even believe in the cross, but they'll see a cross and they'll get all whipped up and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll sign petitions and go to court and spend thousands of dollars to get a cross taken down. Why? Because it convicts them. Because they don't want to... I want to live my fleshy perspective and don't put that cross up in front of me. It makes me think about my own life and it makes me have to reflect on the fact that someone died for me and I don't want to see it. 
And when you start talking about the Lord at work, some people, it's going to be such a blessing to them. It's going to be an ointment to their heart. It's just going to touch them. And there's going to be others that just don't want to hear it. But remember, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is usually the one you hit, right? Usually the one that's the most, it's usually the one being convicted the most. And these guys right here, they just want to stone them. Look at the verse of verse 10. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. You know what? God just said, you ain't going to touch my guys. They wanted to stone them, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle. God showed up. And you know what? I've been there where I've been in a heavy-duty situation, and God showed up. How about you? God shows up. He's faithful. You're his child. Let me ask you a question. If a bunch of people are picking up rocks to stone your kid, would you be there? How quickly? I, I, I hate to see the army trying to stone one of my kids. They'd be in trouble, right? And this is the creator of the universe, and he's made promises that they're going into the land of promise, and he's not going to let that not happen. And so they pick up rocks to stone them, and God shows up. Now, I think that would be enough. I think repentance would be in the thousands right here, right? But instead of that happening, we see that their hearts remain hard. So the response of the people is to find God's will. Now look at the Lord's reaction and understand this, that God is merciful and God is faithful, but God is also just and God will also bring judgment in due time to those who repeatedly reject him. Look at verse 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me with all their, the signs which I have performed among them? The Lord says, how long will they reject me? Rejecting God's will is rejecting God. When you say no to God's will, you're saying no to God. He said, they rejected me because I will, we're rejecting him. How long will they not believe? When we reject his promise, he promised them, right? I promise you, I'm going to take you in the land of promise. They rejected it, so they're being unbelieving. And it's a, it's a heart of unbelief. May we trust his promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Then he says, in spite of all I've shown him. How much has he shown these guys? How about the plagues? Right? Didn't he bring down the plagues? Didn't ultimately Passover deliver them out of bondage? The parting of the Red Sea, the manna falling from the sky, the pillar of cloud and the fire that led them on their way. God had done so many miraculous things and yet they still wanted to go back to the idol worshipers because it was more comfortable there. Because they felt like they fit in better. Verse 12. Now look, watch what the Lord says here. I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. He's talking to Moses. And he says, I'm going to wipe them out. You know, Moses had enough of these three million wine and cry babies. These little murmurs. And they want, and why don't we, I got a plan. Let's just smoke them all. I'll start over with you. Instead of Father Abraham, Father Moses. What do you think? <laughs> if, I was, hey, I, if I was Moses, I'd be pretty tempted at that program. Sign me up for that. You mean I get rid of all these whiners in one fell swoop? All of them? Oh, that sounds pretty good, you know? Me and you, Lord, you know, we were on Mount Sinai hanging out, and you're giving me the Ten Commandments, and I saw the backside. That was a pretty sweet time. I came down there, down to worshiping a golden calf. I'm with you, Lord. But you know what? God's intention was never to smoke the people. I truly believe that God is testing the heart of Moses. And Moses is going to pass with flying colors. Because Moses truly has a pastor's heart. Moses was more concerned about the people than he was himself. Moses was more concerned with God being glorified and the people's lives being transformed than he was his own benefit or what it would cost him. And so he says, let's get rid of them. But Moses, as he had said earlier, he's willing to even die that they would have a chance to live. Look at verse 13. Now watch Moses' intercession. And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For... For by your might, you brought these people out from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people. And that you, Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your name will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring the people to the land which he swore to them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. What was this godly man's motive? His concern was for the Lord's name. He said, Lord, if you do that, it's going to harm your name. People that 
saw you deliver them out of bondage are going to mock your name when they hear that you couldn't bring them into the land of Canaan. They're going to say that the gods of Canaan are greater than you. Lord, your name be glorified. I'll hang out with these guys. It's okay. Lord, if it, it says in Exodus, I'll give my life that they might know you. I'll give my life, Lord. I'm willing to lay it down. That's the heart of someone who's truly called by God to lead people. He's worried about God's name being glorified, and he's worried about the people entering into God's promise. And Moses res responds to the Lord, and he says, Lord, if you destroy him, it's going to harm your name, the name of Jehovah. And then in verse 16, it says, part of there, it says, not able to bring them in the land that you swore to them. He said, you swore to give them this land. Lord, you made a promise to them. It's a promise you made years ago. And so, Lord, I'm not only worried about the faithfulness of your name, but the faithfulness of your word. Lord, you told them that you were going to give them the land. And if you don't give them the land, then your name will be harmed, but so will your word. Your word will be harmed. Here's a godly leader. He elevates God's name and he elevates God's word. Amen? You've got to love Moses in the midst of this. He doesn't say, great, you're God, you're asking me, I'll just go for it. Instead, he says, but no, Lord, your name be glorified and your word be lifted up and your word not be brought harm. Verse 17 and 18. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken. The Lord is long-suffering, abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. So not only does he talk about the faithfulness of his word and the faithfulness of his name, but he talks about the faithfulness of his attributes, the faithfulness of his character, the fact that he's a God of mercy. Our God is a God of love and grace and mercy. Amen? You know what? When people ask you tough questions that you don't know how to answer, what about all the starving people in, you know, Ethiopia? You need to remember that God is a merciful God. Amen? Remember his character. Remember he's a gracious and a loving God. Does he love those children that are starving more than you and I will ever understand? I don't fully understand why all suffering happens, but I understand that God is faithful. And those babies that starve, guess what? When they close their eyes, where are they going to open them up? In heaven. Amen? Our God is a merciful God and a gracious God, and we need to understand His character. And Moses understood the character of God, and he said, God, but you're a long-suffering God and a merciful God. You know, when I came down from Mount Sinai and I saw them there, God, you were merciful. And you've been merciful before, and you, Lord, for your mercy and because of your character, be merciful to them one more time. He talks there about the third and fourth generation. I just want to make a brief statement on this. People sometimes misinterpret this. God does not attribute the sins of a father to the children, but the children sometimes have to deal with the consequences of the sins of their parents. Does that make sense? Some people will say, well, my dad had that problem, so I've got that problem. That's not what it means. It means that if my dad's got that problem, then I may reap the consequences of it. If my dad's an alcoholic who never comes home and doesn't pay the bills, I may reap the consequences of my dad's sin because there's no food at home and I don't have a godly dad to raise me. Does that make sense? And so the sin of the father does come to the children, but some people say, well, I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, no, that doesn't work. That's not how God works. I'm sorry. That's not scriptural. Because then we're blaming our sin on somebody else. We have to be accountable for our own sin. Amen? We can't blame our sin because of the family we were born into. We can't blame our sin because of the environment we grew up in. God knows. He loves you. He's sovereign. He'll take care of you. Trust Him. Verse 19. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then Moses, not only talking about His great mercy, he reminds the Lord that He had forgiven them already. He'd already, given, he'd already forgiven them in the past. So intercession of Moses. He appeals again to God and he says Lord for the faithfulness of your name for the faithfulness of your word for the faithfulness of your character for the faithfulness to your mercy Lord I pray according to your will that you would deliver these people man Moses understands and gets it his eyes are totally on the Lord his passion is only for God's will and he's you know one of four people right now walking with God you got 600,000 men and four of them that get it that's incredible and yet they're praying and they're interceding on their behalf. He doesn't say, when God says, I'll start over with you, Mo. No, I don't, no, Lord, for the sake of your people. And again, I believe God is testing Moses and preparing him 
to be that, continue to prepare him to be that leader. And what a blessing it should have been for the people to hear Moses interceding on their behalf. So we move on now from Moses' intercession to the consequences of rebellion. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. Again, Israel, though righteously deserving of being destroyed, God pardoned Israel because of the words of an intercessor. Okay, let's talk about that one second, right? Did they deserve to be destroyed? Yes. And God, in His grace, delivered them and pardoned them because of the works of an intercessor who came to Him on their behalf and interceded on their behalf for His mercy to touch them. Who's that a picture of? Jesus. Do we deserve to be separated from God for all eternity because of our sin? What's the answer? Absolutely. And because of what Christ did for us, interceding on our behalf, and willing to take all of our sin upon Himself and suffer and die that we might have eternal life, through His shed blood on the cross, we can be saved. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. God did it for us by sending His Son. And so we see here Moses, God again, looking at Moses and because of your word, I'll do it. Because you prayed, because you interceded on their behalf. Can you imagine that our prayer can, can impact eternity? Such an awesome thing when you think about it. You can pray for someone halfway around the world and God hears your prayer. And Moses prayed on their behalf. And he was an intercessor, a type of Christ. Verse 21. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. God's glory is going to fill all the earth. This is the Lord speaking. And it's going to be filled with the report of His righteous judgment He's going to bring against these rebellious people. God pardoned their sin, but He's not going to prevent the consequences of their sin. It's one of the things we need to understand. Contrary to Satan's lie, it does matter how you live. Because even if you've been forgiven for your sin, your sin still has consequences. Amen? Isn't that true? I can go out and commit adultery and ask God to forgive me. And He will. But I may lose my marriage. I may contract a sexually transmitted disease. I may have a child through another woman. I, I, I may, I will, if anybody finds out, blow my spiritual testimony with everyone around. In my case, I'd be totally disqualified from ministry. I mean, it would be just incredible, the consequences. Would God forgive me? Yes. Will the sin have consequences? Absolutely. And this is what we're going to see here, is that God has forgiven them, but their sin is still going to have consequences. Because our sin has consequences. You know what? Our sin's forgiven. It won't keep us from heaven, but it can make us ineffective for ministry. It can blow our testimony and have heavy-duty physical consequences. You know, again, you're out doing drugs, and you ask God to forgive you. Will He forgive you? Yeah. Can you still get AIDS from using an intravenous needle? Yeah. Can you, you know, is it going to wipe out your body and your liver and all kinds? Yeah, it will. And it can. And so we need to understand that God desires to live in holiness before Him because He knows what's best for us. You know what? Sin is not forbidden because it's bad. Or it's, not, it, it's not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It's not bad because it's forbidden. We don't not sin because, oh, that's forbidden. That's why I don't do it. It's forbidden because it's bad. God forbids it because He loves you. I don't let my kids play on the freeway because it's bad. Right? I don't want them getting hit by a truck. I love them. They may not fully understand. But that's why God forbids it. He forbids us to do these things because He knows it will destroy our marriages. It will destroy our homes. It will destroy our families. It will destroy our testimony. He says, don't be drunk with wine. Why? Because He knows what will happen when we're drunk with wine. Our inhibitions are lowered. We don't hear the Holy Spirit anymore. We go out and we blow our testimony. And we sin against God and we lose our temper and all the things that happen. And God says, I don't want you to do that. Be filled with my Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with my Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand that that lie that Satan tells is, ultimate, is the ultimate lie because our sin will have consequences. Now let's look at some of the consequences. Verse 21. Now these are the consequences for Israel. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to test. Now these ten times, and I have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them of those who rejected me see it. So what's the first consequence for their sin? No promised land. You're not going in. You know what? You thought you hated the wilderness walking in it for three days? How are you going to feel about 40 years? Right? Their disobedience was going to have consequences. 
They saw his glory, they saw his signs and wonders, but they rejected his promise and they rejected his will. It's interesting there it says that ten times, ten times they put God to the test. And you know what? I looked them up and it's exactly ten. Imagine that. Just like the Bible says. Twice at the sea. Twice concerning water when they didn't have water. Twice concerning manna. Twice about quail. Once by the golden calf. And now here in the wilderness. Ten times. They question God. Ten times they put Him to the test. And finally, consequences are coming. You know, sometimes we sin and we don't see immediate consequences, so we think it's okay. Can I, can I tell you something? That, that God's forgiveness does not equate to God's permission. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I got away with it. And because God's merciful and God's gracious then we think we can just keep doing it and the consequences will never come. I promise you they will. Ten times they tested God and now the hammer's coming down. Now the consequences are falling upon them. And it's interesting that ten's the same number of the law. The Ten Commandments that showed man that they were sinners. Verse 24. So the first one was, they will not enter the land of promise. Verse 24. But my servant Caleb, because he is a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. So you guys aren't going into the land, but guess what Caleb is? And look what it says there about Caleb. He has a different what? Spirit. And the word there is ruah. And it's a, the breath. It's the breath of God. Ruah. And I love this. He has a different spirit. He has the breath of God within him. And what does it say? Came up a mighty rushing wind, Right? In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, you remember that? I believe that Caleb is filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's why he is able to stand for God in the midst of this. He's able to follow his promises. He's able to heed his word. And Caleb is used mightily by God, and he's going to inherit the land when all others wouldn't. You know what? So often we, we're concerned about being popular with men instead of faithful to God. And praise God that Caleb and Joshua stood up when 600,000 other guys wouldn't and said, we're going to obey God. It doesn't matter what everybody else does. And because of it, God's going to give them a great inheritance. Verse 25. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So what's the second consequence of the rebellion? They get to go back to the wilderness. Okay, guys, you're in rebellion. Instead of the land of promise, back to the wilderness. You know, that's what happens with us. When we're not walking with God and we rebel with Him, we go right back. We fall away from God. I've said this before, Christianity is like a grease pole. You're either climbing up or sliding down. You know, you can't stay in the same spot with God. You're either growing or you're shrinking. You're either getting nearer to Him or you're falling away from Him. And He says, guys, you're right here at the footsteps of the land of promise. You're rebelling against me. Go back into the wilderness. That's the second consequence. Let's move on. Back into the wilderness. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation to complain against me? I have heard the complaints that the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. Now this is incredible. What God's telling them, I heard everything you said, and now I'm going to give you what you've been asking for. Based on your words is what you're going to get now. And it's interesting that sometimes we think if we're only complaining or gossiping to our spouse, then it's not a big deal. Where were they complaining and murmuring the most? In their tents, it said. And God heard what they were complaining about. God hears our every word. And the complaints that were made in their tents had reached His heart. And again, they're complaining and they're murmuring against God. And God's going to judge them based on their words. And it's still true today. The Bible says in Romans 10.9, If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be what? You will be saved. If you confess Him with your mouth, salvation. You deny Him with your lips, you'll be separated from God for all eternity. It's our words that bring judgment. And we see here that God says, by your words, judgment's going to come. Look at verse 29. And He says, The carcasses of you who have complained against Me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. Is that judgment? They, what did they say? They said, only, oh, that we had died in the wilderness. And God says, okay, there you go. That's what you want. That's what you're going to get. You're going to die. Your carcasses are going to die in the wilderness. God's judgment upon unbelief is giving them the very thing that they had asked for. Verse 30. Except for Caleb and the son of, Jeph the, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land, and I swore I would make you, which I swore I would make you dwell in. So two entered in, and we talked about the significance of those guys, Joshua 
and Caleb. Again, a picture of Jesus and the Gentiles grafted in. Verse 31. But you little ones, whom you said would be victims. Remember what they said? If we go into the land of Canaan, our kids are going to die. And what does the Lord tell them? But your little ones, whom you said will be victims. I heard you when you said that. I heard you complaining. I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. Again, God's judgment is ultimately going to happen. And we, sometimes, again, we think that God's permissive will is permission to sin. Because we haven't found judgment yet, or there hasn't been heavy consequences yet, we can just keep living that way. We can walk in rebellion. It doesn't really matter because we're forgiven. But understand, our sin does indeed have consequences. Now notice here the number. Verse 34. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you, be- you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know by my rejection. Now remember, I told you that, that when they went and spied out the land, it was absolutely contrary to God's will. How do we know that? This is more proof of it. He said, you spent 40 days up there checking it out to make sure that what I told you was true. I'm going to give you a little reminder of those 40 days you had to go up there and check out the land. I'm going to give you 40 years wandering in the wilderness to remember it. 40 is the number of what in the Bible? Testing and what else? And judgment. And so we see here, this is God's judgment upon them. They tested God, and He's going to judge them. We don't test God. We don't go up and spend 40 days making sure God knows what He's talking about. We have faith in God. We don't test Him. We don't have to put out fleeces. You know, people do that. I want to put out a fleece. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I believe that putting out a fleece is faithless. We're saying, God, when God told me in His Word, it's not enough. I need Him to prove it to me by doing a bunch of circumstantial things for me. God's Word should be sufficient. And the moving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved, the trumpet blew. Picture of the Word, that should be enough. Not, okay, well now I'm going to get eight more tests to make sure that's accurate. That's faithlessness. And so we see here that God's going to judge them because of it. And so we see that, they're, that the, the next consequence of the rebellion is they're going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to enter again, enter into that land of promise. Unbelief is going to have heavy consequences. Verse 36. Now the men whom Moses sent out to spy the land and returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land. These very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. You know what? I don't want to be in hell in any way, shape, or form, but I truly believe that if you read all of Scripture, that there are some that are going to receive a heavier judgment than others. I don't know how that's going to work. I don't want any of the judgment. How about you? Amen? But I do believe that God, those who stumble people, what does it say about stumbling a little child? It'd be better if what? A millstone, thousand pound stone, you know, millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the depths of the sea. When you start stumbling others with your actions, God does not look upon that kindly. And we see here, he's saying, of those evil guys, he plagued them, wiped them out right there. You guys went into the land, you came back and you poisoned my people by doubting my promises. You know, when we do that, we go out and we, we doubt God's promises in front of others and we make people think that our God's not as great as He is. And we say, yeah, and we can murmur, we complain that people don't want to know the God that we have and we're poisoning people against the Lord that we serve. We're almost done. Verse 38. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Those who speak God will face judgment, but those who stand up for Him will be blessed. And then lastly, disobeying God's command. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. You know what? These guys, now this, they should mourn this time. This is about time they mourn, right? But they get told, the land of promise is for us. Now they're told you can't go in. And they're mourning. But we're going to see that they're not truly repentant. Look at verse 40. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain saying, Here we are, and we'll go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Now doesn't it sound like they're repentant? They're saying they mourn, and they say we've sinned, and they say, Okay, Lord, we'll go into the land now. Guess what? It's too late. The ship has sailed, man. It's too late. Today's the day of salvation. There's going to come a time where it's too late for people to repent. Do you know that? Everybody's going to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on Judgment Day. You know that? Amen? But for most, sadly, it will be too late. And these guys don't truly repent. Let me tell you why they don't repent. 
and how I know they didn't repent. Because Israel rebels against God yet again, because they're not broken and sorrowful. They don't fall on their faces before God, but instead, and they don't listen to Him, because what did He tell them to do? He said, go back into the wilderness, right? Instead, they went the opposite direction again. He told them to go in the land of promise. They wanted to go back to the wilderness, to Egypt. He tells them to go in the wilderness. They, go, they try to go to the land of promise. Whatever way God says to go, they want to go the opposite way. These guys are so rebellious. You know, I don't know what God would have done, but I believe if they had fallen on their face and truly repented, God could, would have forgiven some of them. Amen? If he had fall, if they had fallen, but instead, they rebelled some more. And here's how we know they rebelled. Last few verses. And Moses said, why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies. For the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are before you. And you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. Now look at verse 44. So he says, guys, if you go up and try to fight this battle now, you're fighting it by yourself. If you'd gone with the Lord, we would have wiped them out. They would have been bred to us. But now you want to go up without them? It's, going to be, it's not going to be pretty. And look at the word there in verse 44. He says, but they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. The word there for presumed is the Hebrew word lifted up. It means to be proud or arrogant. They arrogantly said, we're going anyway. We're going anyway. We don't care what God said, we're going to do it because that's what's in our heart. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. They presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant or the Lord nor Mo- Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. How did they do in the battle without the Lord? They got smoked. If they had just... When God promised if they had gone, God would have brought great victory. But because they doubted God and they waited for the consequences to come, they were not truly repentant. (coughs) Excuse me. They were sad that they got busted. They were sorry for the consequences. They weren't repentant for their sin. God wants us to come to Him not because we've been slapped on the wrist and now we're in big trouble and we might have to go to jail. Got my third DUI, I might have to go to jail. Lord, save me. You know, Christ is Christianity. Coming to God only... The, now, if you're going through a difficulty, please do go to the Lord, but come with a sincere heart, but don't wait for that to come to Him. Amen? Have that intimate relationship with Him. So in review, contrary to the lie Satan tells us, sin and rebellion against God and His will for our lives does indeed have consequences. It will impact our lives. As Christians, as Christian men and women of faith, we're to have an intimate 24-hour day, 7-day relationship with the Lord. How do we do that? You keep short accounts with God. I've told you this before. The sign of spiritual maturity is a distance between when you sin and when you repent. Shouldn't be days or weeks. Should be minutes or seconds. Amen? The closer you get to the Lord when you sin, it's, it's just immediate conviction. And it drives you to your knees. So the consequence of rebellion, I wrote them down in several ways. One, for Israel, they would not enter the land of promise, at least those who had rebelled. They had to return to the wilderness. They faced God's ultimate judgment that they would die there. They spent 40 years wandering. The 10 spies themselves were hit with the plague immediately. And going forward into battle, they had no hope. What about for the unbeliever today? What are the consequences of his sin? No promise of heaven. Because their sin is separated from God and they haven't given their life to Him. Their life will be fruitless. It will have no eternal significance. They'll be given what they've asked for because they've repeatedly said no to Jesus, no to Jesus, no to Jesus, and they'll face God's eternal judgment. What about us as believers? How does sin or rebellion, the consequences of rebellion, impact us? Number one, it breaks fellowship with God. When you sin against God, you break that intimacy with Him. Number two, it renders us ineffective for ministry. How can you share your faith with someone else when your own walk is tweaked and you're not spending time with the Lord and you're not on your face before Him and you're blowing your testimony at work by the language that's coming out of your mouth and the attitude you have? It will give us a dry and fruitless walk and we won't have joy or peace or contentment. But the good news is you can take a million steps away from God and it's only one step back. No matter how much you've blown it, our God is right there saying, I love you and I want you to have that intimacy with me. And all you have to do is turn and say, Lord, forgive me. And he will every single time. What a great God we serve. Amen. And I want to end with this. that A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Remember that the testing of our faith makes us more like the Lord. You know what's interesting? I believe Caleb and Joshua at the end of this are more like the Lord. Amen. But the people that failed the test have been removed from him. But the ones that endured it 
and learned from it and grew through it, came out of it closer to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and we thank you for the examples you give us in your word that, that Lord, I pray that each of our hearts would be touched to live holy before you and truly to pursue you with our whole heart. Lord, may we not compromise in our faith. May we not buy the lie that it doesn't matter how we live. We're going to heaven anyway and we can just live however we want. But Lord, I pray that we would be so in love with you we would never want to break fellowship with you. That we'd be quickly convicted when we sin. That we would be concerned about our testimony before others. Your name being lifted up. That, Lord, people would see the faithfulness of your word because they'd see it acted out in our lives. Father, I pray for anybody here who's struggling right now. Lord, maybe in rebellion or suffering some of the consequences of it. I pray, Lord, that they would know that while they may have taken hundreds or thousands or even million steps away from you, that tonight, Lord, it's only one step back. That they can turn to you and say, Lord, forgive me and you'll restore them to right fellowship with you. Lord, we love you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.